This is the Jason Kavnis Experience, hosted by Jason Kavnis. Join Jason as he talks to small business owners and startup founders and other interesting people as we gain great insights about business, people, leadership, HR, and how each guest strives to be great every day. The Jason Kavnis Experience is brought to you by Kavnis HR. At Kavnis HR, we deliver HR to companies with 49 or fewer people across the United States. Each year, it is estimated that small business owners are losing $27 million because of HR, which comes out to an estimated $10,000 per small business employee. Also, small business owners are spending an estimated 25% of the time on HR. Time better spent taking care of employees, taking care of customers, and building their business. Kevin's HR, focus on your business. We've got your HR. Hello, and welcome to Jason Kavnis Experience. I'm your host, Jason Kavnis. Our guest today is Rachel Drunkenmiller. Rachel, are you ready to be great today? I'm ready. Rachel is on a mission to ignite more resilient, intentional, and life-giving leadership through virtual and in-person keynotes of life learning experiences. With over a dozen years of experience, she is a nationally recognized star leader in the field of workplace culture and well-being. She was named the number one health promotion professional in the United States in 2015 by the Wellness Council of America and recognized as a 40 under 40 game changer by Workforce Magazine 2019. Check out her daily videos on LinkedIn for daily inspiration, motivation, and insight to bring out the best in yourself and others. Thank you, Rachel, for being here today. I really appreciate it. Yeah, I'm excited for this conversation. So, Rachel, what are you focused on right now? What's keeping you busy? Keeping me busy. A lot of things. It's funny, yesterday I, I did a little bit of math looking back to say, how many presentations have I done since COVID started? And I've done 68 presentations since the middle of March. <laughs> Whoa, that's, that's a lot of presentations. It's, it's a lot, but I guess there's a high need for uh, resilience and being more human right now. So I, I feel like I'm in a good spot. Why do you think so many of people asking for your service? And I was just that all of a sudden had, a, you know, it just came to them, they needed help with this, or is it COVID, brought by COVID, or what do you think the main reason is? Yeah, it's a combination. I mean, in the HR community in particular, I had established myself, you know, over the past few years of, of working with and speaking, you know, at, at their events around things related to well-being. And when COVID hit, some of them reached out to me, actually, and they were like, uh, we cannot move forward with programming as usual. Our people are really freaking out and we need help and we need to give them hope and we need to give them some support to shift their mindset. Can you do that? And so that really, I kind of, I, I kind of accidentally ended up where I did, but with, with years of experience kind of building up to this place. So I think that was, you know, a lot of it. people just were realizing the need of, we cannot ignore this and our people need help and we have to do something to support and equip them to be able to make it through this season. Is a certain type of company you reach out to? Like, is a certain industry, certain demographic, certain you know amount of revenue, or just all kinds? I mean, all kinds. I, I find that I end up working a lot with professional services firms. So, in the uh, accounting, insurance, finance, engineering, scientific research space. So, so a lot of kind of professional services companies, all different sizes, and um, work with their leadership teams. You know, speak at all hands meetings and keynotes and. Uh, it's, it's really fun to kind of work. And of course, with HR professionals, um, it's really, really fun to kind of work with, with that variety of people and to bring these messages to places where they're not typically hearing them. So how does it work? Suppose, suppose a company hires you on, but then you can quickly tell that they're just checking a buffer. They, do, they really 
they really don't care about learning or getting better. They're just there to check the block. How, how does that work for you? You like break the contract with them and tell them you're not for them, or how does that? What do we do in that situation? Yeah, I mean, I'm pretty honest with people about like, look, you know, I'm I'm not a check the box kind of thing. You know, if you if you want something to come in and just, I mean, I can do the the one off sessions, and I do do those with some people that are like, look, we just need to do like something to just breathe a little life into people right now. I can do that. I like doing that, but I find that if we're an organization says, hey, we're doing leadership training, we want to do one session, it's like, well that's not going to change anything for the long run. So I just, I just like to be honest with people and then let them make the decision of say, Hey, look, this is the way I've seen it work best and most effectively. I can do this, but I don't think it's going to get you what you want. So I just try to be honest with people and say, look, if you really want somebody to do X um, and you just want to do this version of it, you know, here's somebody who might be able to help you. But if you really want to dig deeper, um, then, then here's how we would go about doing that. So, yeah. So what do you do in this situation? Like you go to company, and the company owner says, you know, we are the best company ever. Everything's great, you know, and you talk to employees and they are telling you a different story. Um, well, you know, a lot of times when organizations are, you know, recognized as a, as a top workplace, for instance, so they really do value their culture. I've had those kind of organizations reach out over the past five months, too, of saying, you know, we really do value our people. And because we can't bring them together for in-person happy hours or because we can't do all of the social things we used to do in person, we're looking for other things to do. So they're doing like cooking demonstrations virtually or they're doing virtual wine tastings or they're doing Zumba classes or they're doing, you know, activities where they bring kids together. You know, I'm finding that a lot of times, um, you know, I don't necessarily get the direct access to the employees before I'm going in and doing something for them. So I, I will a lot of the times do like a, a survey ahead of time to find out, all right, what are the what are the key pain points of the people that are going to be in the room? And then ask them, hey, if you could take away one thing from this session, if you're going to spend an hour with me, if you're going to spend 90 minutes, you know, um, out of your day doing this thing, what are you tangibly hoping to walk away from? And then I take that feedback and I incorporate it into what I do. So I may not talk to them directly, but I may be able to get some insight from talking to several people on the HR team or by doing surveys like that ahead of time to really get a pulse on what's going on. Have you seen, what challenges have you seen? Like people like, you know, they're a manager, everyone's in the office and then, and then anything's remote. Have, what challenges have you seen owners or managers like switching from like in-person supervision to like remote supervision? I've seen lots of interesting things. I read an article the other day. I forget where I saw it, um, but, and I could, I could find it, I'm sure. But I think people are going a couple different directions with this. I think some people are going to the micromanaging mode where they're like, tell me what you did every hour of the day to day because they don't know how to manage people who they can't see. And I think that's going to be really, really, really toxic. The organizations that go that route, because what it, what it indicates is a lack of trust in their people. And so I think people are going to uh, resent that and become bitter and be very likely to be looking for employment elsewhere. If that's the route the employer goes, if they're, if they're really in their business and they're micromanaging. What I find to be helpful is to give leaders tools and even phrasing to use to check in with their people. So for instance, something as simple as, how can I best support you right now? That phrase, asking a question like that, how can I best support you right now? Or, hey, uh, you've been on my mind. I just want to check in and, and see how you're doing. Like, as, how are you doing at work? And how are you doing outside of work? I, I, I really want to be here to support you as your leader, as a whole person. And, and that takes time to get to that point. Because if you're a leader who traditionally has not demonstrated that you care about the whole person, and then you suddenly show up and you're like, I care about you. <laughs> you don't have that foundation of trust built up. And a lot of people are trying to do that right now. And so what I do is I have a little, I like to use uh, kind of metaphors for things, but um, in the book, Dare to Lead, Brene Brown talks about relationships and trust building as like a jar of marbles. 
and how every time we have an experience with somebody that it's, you know, it's an affirmation or it's a validation or it's a connection or it's a follow through or it's asking for feedback and acting on it. Each of those things puts a marble in the jar. But when we have something disruptive that happens, like when we feel like our employer is spying on us, for instance, and tracking our every move, that takes a big chunk of marbles out of the jar and those are much harder to replace. So I like to encourage people to think of their relationships and their organization as like a jar of marbles and to be very conscious of what are the little things that you're doing on a consistent basis to create these opportunities of connection and, and stacking of these small moments of trust over time so that when you do get to the point where people are in a tough spot, you have some marbles in the jar and you can actually have some more of those conversations that might be a bit deeper than you were used to doing before when you could just see each other all the time. And in fairness, a lot of there are some employees who are not good remote workers, right? Yeah, I mean, there's some employees like, for instance, if you got like four kids running around the house and you got like two dogs barking in the background, like that just might not be the the right fit. So I don't think I don't think it's for everybody. And I think some people really do benefit from being in that space of of being with other people. But I think what it's really going to cut back on, and I think this is good is unnecessary travel. So for instance, we have to go see this client in person. We have to go take this you know, morning flight that's three hours and then take the red eye back. I think people are going to recognize, you know what? We could just have a phone call. Just for a 30 minute meeting. <laughs> right. <laughs> so I think that'll be better, better for the bottom line and also better for people's families, which I think is a big part of what's been affected right now. We're getting to know what I often call the soul behind the role. You know, we're getting to see that people are not just their jobs, that even the people that you thought were super together in the office might be a little bit of a hot mess at home and you're seeing their world behind them. We can't hide these things anymore. And, and because of that, it's, I think it's particularly important for leaders to be compassionate um, toward their people, recognizing that everyone's doing the best they can and everyone's got a different set of struggles and challenges that are making it difficult for them or easier for them to work in this new setup. Yeah. And we, when we said like, hey, do we want work? We didn't say we want work plus part-time teacher, plus part-time this, plus this, plus that, you know? Yes, exactly. Well, even the, even the phrasing I heard it um, said the other day, I, I heard it a couple places, but even the phrase return to work is a misnomer. It's like, uh, people are working. <laughs> yeah, what, what do you think people are doing? Right. They have <laughs> like no vacation. They're, they're Right, right. And people actually, interesting thing, I'm finding that people are less apt to take vacation because they're like, well, if they never worked from home before and they always had like their computer stayed in the office, for instance, when they left work, they pretty much left work. But now if all of your work is pretty much in the room right next to you all the time, I think a lot of people I'm finding from the work that I'm doing with managers and leaders and the feedback I'm getting and the, the surveys and stuff that I'm collecting from them is that they're working more than ever because they're like, well, I used to have a two and a half hour commute. So now I'll just work two and a half extra hours. <laughs> um, and that's hard. And I think for HR in particular, it's important to be mindful of that, to really give people permission to take some time away, to disconnect, to, I mean, to turn off the notifications on their phone and to have people hold them accountable and say, hey, you said you're on vacation. Do not respond to this email. That's a very good point. <laughs> so what define unmuted? What does that mean to you? All right. So for kind of shifting into that, I think it's really actually connected to what we're talking about now. Um, for me, being unmuted is using your voice to advocate for yourself, to ask for what you need and want, to speak up um, at work, to speak up in your relationships. And 
And the reason why it matters so much to me is because I silenced myself like a lot of us do. I silenced myself for a lot of my life um, emotionally, whether it was dealing with um, some dysfunction in my parents' marriage as a kid or loving to sing, but not being willing to be that vulnerable in front of people and sing publicly. Or um, if it was you know, that I, my feelings were hurt by my peers because I felt excluded. I just buried a lot of that. And there's, there's repercussions to doing that. And a lot of us do that, especially at work. And men and women do this, but women are probably a bit more apt to kind of suffer the negative consequences of it in terms of it showing up as health issues, as depression, as even, even something like a uh, like, like irritable bowel syndrome, which is not something we probably talk about typically on, on these conversations, but it can manifest. If we don't speak up, if we silence ourselves, it's going gonna, it's gonna to show up in some other way in our lives or in our body, and we're going to have to deal with it eventually. So I just find that to be unmuted is to really be fully and joyfully alive. And there's an energy that comes with that that I think people are really missing. And I, I light up I light up in the work that I do when I see people advocating for themselves and speaking up and asking for what they want and taking risks and going after big dreams, that kind of stuff, just really like that, that really excites me. So do you think a lot of people mute themselves because they're concerned like, no, if I'm, if I'm my true authentic self, people won't like me or they just dismiss on me or is this a lack of confidence in themselves? I think it's all of those things. I think it's a lack of confidence. I think it's fear of being dismissed. I think it's a fear of rejection. I think it's a fear of judgment. I think it's a fear of embarrassment. It's like, oh, what if I do that thing and I totally bomb? I don't feel secure enough in myself to take that risk. And so I'm not going to, which is how I felt about singing for a really long time. I was like, what if I, what if my voice breaks? What if I miss a note? Oh my goodness. People will think I'm a terrible singer and then I will never sing again. So I'll just start by never singing. And, and I think, I think we do this. And I think in the, also in the HR profession, there's maybe a tendency to constantly push down all of our own needs because we're the people that are supposed to meet the needs of everybody else. And so you may end up in a position where you're frustrated that you're not valued, you're not appreciated, but maybe you haven't taken the time to communicate the value that you bring. Or maybe you haven't taken the time to ask for feedback on what you're doing well and what you could be doing better or differently. You know, maybe you haven't communicated that, hey, I've been a generalist for seven years and I would like to move into an executive position. What's the growth path for that? You know, so I think a lot of it is, is just... Is is just taking those small steps over time that will help us get closer to where we want to be. But it takes courage, and it and it can feel risky and scary to do that. So, if someone's in an organization where they feel like they, they had to be muted, would you recommend they find another job or somewhere else where they feel more open, or just like stick it out and, and work for themselves until they can feel they can be unmuted? Well, considering that I was someone who was in that position. <laughs> Um, I actually, there's an assessment that I love. It's, it's a tool that's used by a lot of people leaders, uh, the predictive index. And it gives you kind of a, it ranks you on four different variables on um, extroversion, on, um, sorry, on dominance, on extroversion, on uh, formality, and on uh, patience. And so I, you take the assessment and you get two graphs back or three back. You get back one that reflects how you see yourself. You get another that reflects how you think other people expect you to show up. And then you get the composite, which is like those two blended together. And five or six years ago, I remember sitting down with our HR coach that worked for our organization. And I looked at my charts and I was like, these are, these are two different people. 
like who I am is like, take charge, take the lead extrovert. I want a lot of variety. You know, I'm willing to kind of flex on the formality piece and who I thought everyone expected me to be was just, can you just do what we ask you to do? (laughs) Can you just go with the, can you just go along with the process? Can you just like, can you just do what we ask? And I was like, well, no, I'm naturally a challenger. I'm naturally somebody who is constructively disruptive as my friend Brian Passon says. And and how I, I question things. I'm very curious and I want to understand why things are. And I'm okay doing something that hasn't been done before if I, in my soul and my being and my core, believe that it's right. And so, you know, um, that's been an interesting experience of, of, of getting unmuted. And so it took me, that was six years ago. So I didn't go out on my own and start my own business until last year. So I sat with that knowledge for five years (laughs) before I decided to make a move. And, you know, all things considered, what I would suggest for people to do is to, is to get more honest with yourself um, and, and to get feedback from other people about what, when they've seen you at your best, when they've seen you at your best, what did they see come out? And then to really do some reflecting yourself and recognize, all right, how might I spend more of my time doing that stuff that really lights me up and, and get very granular. I used to have a list um, that I kept at my job that I would use in my conversations with my boss for, you know, when we had compensation questions and that kind of stuff. And I had a list of my, my highest payoff activities. So the things that when I, that the things that I did were that only I could do at that level that I was uniquely positioned, skilled, qualified um, and, and equipped to do. And then I had a list of other things that were basically um, were, were referred to my boss as, uh, you referred to them as energy vampires. So I was like, what are, what are the things that suck the life out of you? And I made a list of those things too. It's kind of like a to-do and a not-to-do list. And so I looked at those things that were all the things that basically sucked the life out of me. And I said, hmm, how can I delegate these? <laughs> and so that way I could spend more time. And I told them, I said, look, if you're having me spend my time on list B, you are overpaying me. But if you had me spend my time on list A, you are getting a really good deal. And so part of this, we have such a fear that if we advocate for ourselves, we're going to get fired or that something terrible is going to happen. And that never was the case for me. It was so few people do that. Um, But if you're at a place where they're not letting you do the things you want to do and you've tried and you've made effort and you've gotten feedback about what you could be doing differently and you've, you've done the self-awareness work and you have changed your approach um, to accommodate their ask and they're still not budging, look for another job. Like life is too short to be miserable in the work that you're doing. I totally agree. And nowadays, like back in the past, you know, you had to stay on a job 10, 50, 20 years. Nowadays, you, you can change a job every year, every two years. No one's going to really say anything anymore. I don't think. It's, it's true. And you know, actually, it's funny you say that because I remember I was at an HR conference about three years ago, four, three or four years ago. And the question was like, make a list of some of your, like, some of your biggest dreams and goals for your life. Like, what are you most looking forward to in the future? So I'm like, write a best-selling book and like do a TED talk. And like, you know, I have all these big things that I want to do. And I remember the instructor, there were like 150 people in the room. And the person who was facilitating the session called on somebody in the front row. And I'll never forget, they raised their hand and they said, retirement. I just remember thinking, what have we done to work? (laughs) That it is so miserable for people that the thing they're looking to most in their entire life is basically not working, like not really doing anything. 
what have we done to work? Retirement is actually actually a pretty new concept, isn't it? Like people didn't work in the 1800s and retire, right? Like that's pretty new. Yeah, in other cultures too. People don't stop. I mean, in other cultures, people just, they keep working and people who live the longest, like some of the people, you know, some of the, some of the traits of people that live a really long time, they, they worked until they were like 85 years old. They didn't retire 50 years. They have a purpose. That's exactly what it is. It connects us to purpose. So is it safe to presume that if you're an introvert, you're more likely to meet yourself? Uh, that's a really great question. So I considered myself an, this is usually surprising to people. <laughs> I considered myself an introvert. Um, I was classic on Myers-Briggs, which I don't know, marginally, I think that's marginally helpful. There's been a lot of people like including Adam Grant who have called out why it's not effective or valid. But when I took the assessment growing up, I showed up as an ISTJ which is like, you know, very like introverted, sensing, thinking, judging kind of person, very someone who is in their own head. And I am literally the opposite of that, but the change of one letter now as an adult. And I really think it was, I didn't feel safe to be who I really was for so much of my life that I, it wasn't until I truly felt accepted and seen, which didn't happen until about three years ago after I burned out and bottomed out and had to suddenly start being honest with people in a way I never was before that I realized, Oh my gosh, you actually weren't introverted, Rachel. You were just silencing yourself because you didn't feel comfortable in who you were. So I don't think that's like the case for everybody. I think some, like my husband's an introvert, you know? Um, but I also think that labels aren't particularly helpful either. There's a, there's a book I'm reading called personality isn't permanent. And I think that's really helpful for people to think about is like labels are very limiting. And so if we say, oh, well, I'm an introvert, so I don't speak up. That's a cop out. It's a cop out. Introverts speak up and so do extroverts. And so I would invite people and maybe even challenge people to think about what are the limit, what are the, what are the limiters that you use on yourself? What are the labels that you place on yourself that are potentially doing more harm than good? Um, like I'm not someone who asks for what I want, or I'm not somebody who sings in front of people. And now I'm like, you know, on LinkedIn singing videos to thousands of people. I don't even know. And (laughs) it's fun for me. So part of it is really challenging those beliefs you have about yourself that are limiting and, and really wondering and imagining what could happen if you flip those on their, you know, flip them on their head and say, well, what if that's not true of me? And, and to really not let yourself be so defined by these boxes. That's what I would invite people to do. I think I'm a big one people do too. And we'll talk about this later on in our talk. I'm not a good public speaker. I think so many people do that, right? Sure. Um, yeah. They're like, I can't do that. Like, I don't speak. In, I, I, do you know, I avoided, literally, I avoided debate classes. I avoided speaking classes. I avoided choir. I avoided anything that would require me to stand in front of a group of people and open my mouth and let anything out. Basically. And now I get paid to speak. (laughs) That's great. So Rachel, how does empathy make someone a better leader? Well, you know, I think, I think that's one of the qualities we need to unmute in leadership, frankly, because the old, the old guard basically said command and control. So um, I need to keep everybody in line. So they follow instructions and do as I say. And if that happens, we will have order and avoid chaos. That's the old way of thinking because people don't operate that way. And we're not robots working in a, in a factory. I mean, you may be working if you're, you know, in, in manufacturing, you may have employees that are in a factory, but generally speaking, that concept of I need to command and control people in order to get things done. It's, it's just not based in reality anymore. It's more for me. I reframe 
command and control to connect and care. So how can we shift from being people who are focusing on, I just get them to listen. If I just show them how smart I am, if I just assert my power, that's just going to make people not like you. So one of the things that I think this starts with, part of empathy is self-awareness. And I think a lot of leaders, it's kind of like driving. If you ask most people if they're a good driver, they're like, I'm a great driver. It's like, if you ask most people if they're self-aware, they're like, I'm very self-aware, which most people are not either. (laughs) So, you know, empathy really, I think, starts with that level of self-awareness of taking a moment and stepping back and and, and being humble enough, which is another trait that I think is underappreciated in humans in general, but especially in leaders, is to have the humility to ask for feedback about, hey, what am I doing that's really working here? Is there anything I'm doing that is driving people nuts? It'll take you time for people to be honest with you about that if you've never asked these questions before. (laughs) Um, And is there anything that maybe I could be doing better than what I'm doing right now? Anything I could be doing differently to be more effective? So I think it starts with really understanding how you're being perceived in the first place. And then, you know, from there, getting clear on, okay, when you, when you notice your temper flaring, how can you, part of empathy is self-regulation. How can I make sure that when I have those moments where I just want to bite someone's head off, that I take a step back and then I pause, maybe I get curious and say, hmm, maybe they're not doing that just to tick me off. Maybe there's something else that I don't know about that's going on. So let me get curious and find out and ask, hey, this thing happened and here's the impact that it had. And I just want to check in with you and, you know, and, and, and to see if, um, you know, what might be going on that I might not be aware of because I don't want to make any assumptions about why that happened. So, so much of it from the empathy perspective is really getting curious. It's about being self-aware. And it's, it's also about making sure that when we're talking with people that we're truly present, undistracted, like I looked down some like phones away, like when we're present with people, phones away and really making sure they feel heard. So like, mirroring back to them what you heard them say. So, so what I heard you say was you're feeling really frustrated about trying to figure out how to work from home and homeschool your kids at the same time. Did I get that? Most leaders never do something as simple as that of just make someone feel heard and then validate their experience. It's like, you know, it makes sense that, that you'd be feeling really frustrated. I can't imagine what that must be like. What can we do to best support you right now? It's like, those are the steps. Those are some, I mean, it's, it's a very, there's entire books on empathy and emotional intelligence, but those are, those are a couple steps, I think, starting off that people can take, um, you know, to really make sure that we're being present for people, that we're curious, and that we're not making assumptions about them, and that we're more aware of our own behavior and how that's affecting other people. Yeah, I think a lot of managers get wrong, too, is like, if you just let your people vent to you once in a while, that solves most of the problems, right? This one, like, they just want to be heard. heard. Yeah. They, and that's part, part of it is they want to be heard, but then it's also like, how do we get out of that cycle of saying, okay, so what do you think we should do about that? Like, so part of it is recognizing, recognizing and making them feel heard. Say, Thank you for sharing that with me. I appreciate you opening up. So again, recognizing what they did, acknowledging the fact that they opened up to you say, Hey, you know, I really appreciate you coming with that. And I would love to figure out something that, that we could, you know, come up with to make this work. Do you want to, do you want to talk about that now? Or do you want to schedule a time later? Because maybe you just needed to get that off your chest, which is fine. Um, but if you want to kind of do some uh, possibility mapping is another way of saying problem solving. If you want to kind of map out some possibilities for how we might approach this, uh, you know, let me know. I'd be happy to schedule time to do that, to do that with you because I really want to support you to get to a better place with this. 
Rachel, from your perspective, what you're seeing out there, what are people in general getting wrong about culture? Uh, a lot of things. <laughs> um, that I think that, that there's this perception that that culture is um, ping pong tables and uh, on-site workout happy classes. Happy hours. Happy hours. beer. And rock climbing walls, you know, it's, it's absurd, right? Those are what are called climate and climate are the things we see on the surface. So if you're imagining a stream bed and you see the forest around it, right? Climate is like the rocks and the trees and the root and like, and like the, 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 the trunks of the tree and the branches and the frogs hopping around. That's climate. What we really are more interested in is, is culture, which is the, you know, the set of experiences, values, and beliefs that guide an organization. And I think what's happening right now in particular with what's going on with all the shifts as a result of the pandemic is that people are recognizing, gosh, if we're not physically together in that cool office space, you know, how do we really... Um, how do we really make sure we support people and maintain and sustain our culture? So I'm having more conversations now with organizations and their teams and we're doing facilitated, you know, like breakout groups and giving people the opportunity to actually crowdsource uh, solutions for this. So even a simple asking something as simple as, Hey, you know, wouldn't it be cool if we are on the topic of connection? So, Hey, what's something cool that we could do to foster connection and community within our organization right now? And give people, put people in small groups, give them the chance to talk about that and have them come back together and share their ideas. Like there's going to be a good idea in there. And, and so I find that it's so, for me, part of the unmuting process now is shifting from unmuting myself to helping other people get unmuted. And that's one of the ways I love to do it is bringing together groups of people where you get to leverage the collective wisdom of the people that work for your company and to pull out of them some of their ideas, because there are genius ideas within your own people. And I really help to facilitate the process to allow that, that genius to emerge and then to allow them to solve their own problems and, their, and, and to come up with their own possibilities to the challenges they're facing. And I find that that's very life-giving and it is 100% possible and really effective in a virtual environment too. So Rachel, tell me if you agree or disagree with this and why. There's no such thing as good or bad culture on the culture that's best for your company. Uh, I would disagree with that. I think because in terms of bad culture, when I think of bad culture, I think of toxic workplaces. And there can be a culture that is, I would deem bad because it's toxic, but I don't believe that they're irreparable. Like I truly, I have kind of a optimistic realism that by asking the right questions, again, asking generative questions that really help people move from fixing problems, which is where most people spend their time in organizations, to imagining possibilities. When we create that shift in, in language and in focus, how do we move away from fixing problems to imagining what's possible, to bringing out the best, to saying, hey, even though um, you know, we don't have the greatest culture right now, like if they're thinking this through, when have we been at our best? When are things working? And how can we build upon those things? So I don't think inherently that at, at their core, there's necessarily, you know, bad cultures that are completely irreparable. I believe that, well, one, if you're led by like a totally narcissistic person who has zero self-awareness or desire to change, you need to get out of that job because that person's not going to change. They're just going to continue to frustrate you and you're going to be 
um, continually resentful and bitter, and it'll probably affect your mental, emotional, and physical health and well-being. In those cases, I'd say get out. But if it's really a matter of like you have good people, but there's just been some things that have happened. Maybe previous leaders were toxic, and you never did any damage control. And now there's some like cultural PTSD stuff going on. Um, you know, I, I think I think that the people in the organization. I think so many organizations miss this that the people that work there can do so much of the the solution creation if they are given the opportunity to do so and if they see that the feedback they give and the ideas they share are actually implemented. That is what gives people hope. And they say, oh my goodness, I unmuted myself. I spoke up. I asked for something. I contributed an idea. And then I saw them do something with it. That is what so rarely happens. And like a lot of organizations, a lot of organizations. And so I think first and foremost, like really taking that time to get curious and to, and to determine, all right, what do we have that is good here for an organization that's struggling? What do we have that's good? How can we build on that? And, and how do we want to move forward? How do we want to redefine what our values are, what matters to us? And how do we want to contribute to co-creating the future of our culture instead of staying stuck and believing that what we have right now is the best it's going to be? So, Rachel, I think we've all been in places where there's like one toxic person in an organization. Should the organization try to make that person better or get rid of them? Like, how long should you try to like work on improving a toxic person? We say, okay, this is not working. We need to move on from this person. Well, I know uh, Gary Vaynerchuk, I know, has very strong opinions about that, or he's like, get rid of the bad apples. Like, it's just not worth it. The damage and the toll that it takes when you have somebody who's really, really toxic at your company. And the bummer is that a lot of times these people are top performers in the sense that they generate a lot of revenue, maybe, or they're like your top sales associate, but they're a total jerk. And you lose as a leader, you lose credibility and trust when you knowingly let something continue in your organization that is harming the health and well-being and productivity and connectedness and relationships of your people. Because that will have an effect on your client experience as well. If there's somebody that's really just a jerk to work with, someone's going to be frustrated with that person one day and it's going to come out on a client experience. And people don't realize that that has a ripple effect like that. So, you know, I would say, be first of all, be very... Those people are often bullies and people are not typically honest with them. So I had a conversation with a law firm the other day. They had this person who was just like a very kind of misogynistic, sexist person. And he um, was kind of like a... I don't want to call him underling, but he wasn't like a partner, let's say. And he was getting tasked to do stuff that he didn't, he thought he was above it. And so he naturally gave it to give to the, the female associates at the organization to do, which is, this is not uncommon, um, to give to the female associates of the organization to do. And in the midst of doing that, like there was a conversation that had to be had of like, hey, so uh, here's the expectations if you're going to work here. Um, these are the tasks and responsibilities for you to do. And without even referencing this other person, saying the things that, you know, this, this person was giving to them to do and say, so these are your responsibilities. Um, if you want to, we would love for you to stay here. If you want to stay here, these are the things that you are tasked to do. Kind of like, are we clear on that? And so a lot of times people just aren't having conversations with those people. Like, so if you have someone that's being really toxic to really, you know, pull them aside and be very clear about the expectations for behavior here. And most people are so conflict avoidant that they won't do that. And then they will allow the toxic person to continue to um, cause, you know, kind of a mess in the organization. It's not worth it. It's not worth it. I guess a lot of time, like organization, like someone's not performing or whatever. And, and, and the boss will say, 
you know, Jason's not doing right. He's not doing well. He needs to improve. And someone say, well, are you going to tell him? Well, he knows he's not doing well. Well, if he knows he's not doing well, do you think he will improve? Like, maybe he doesn't know he's not doing well. Like, people just, I, I never got that right. Uh, yeah, I, I don't get it either. And they don't have conversation because, again, it's a bully. They're, they're not, they're expecting no one to challenge them. And so they're just going to keep going by and, and, and doing what they want to do because People are letting them. It's like we create the condition for the bullying to cons- to persist, and then we're like, "Why is the bullying happen happening?" Because you're not doing it. You're not standing yeah, up to the bully. You're being enabled, right? So, Rachel, change this up a little bit. You involved in an organization called Hacking HR. Can you talk about that and why you got involved with Hacking HR? Uh, yeah, Hacking HR is a global organization that is really focused on rethinking and reimagining the HR profession. And uh, my friend Enrique Rubio started it, and we started our Baltimore chapter two years ago. And we're actually um, planning our upcoming events. We had a little bit of a hiatus. I, I was a pretty bad injury in the, the midst of uh, COVID happening um, due to a car accident. And so I was kind of, you know, off the grid on any extra things for a few months, but we have something coming up. And, and so there's a lot of, you know, online events that are being scheduled. They, there's a global summit that is incredible. There's like 500 speakers. I'll be one of the speakers. I was one of the speakers this past year. Um, and you can go to hackinghr.io. And so you can find a chapter in your city. Again, it's global. So no matter where someone's listening to this from, they're very likely to find a chapter near them that they can get involved with. And because so many chapters are doing virtual events now, you could even potentially kind of sit in on events at other chapters if you want. You know, and there might be like a small fee to pay. Um, and they also just launched a podcast, Hacking HR Podcast. And in addition to that, there's other programs. So if you're an HR leader who kind of wants to, you know, grow into the next level of what you're doing, they have a program called Grow. That's an application program. There's lots of really incredible programs um, and so many resources. It's a phenomenal community. And it has, like, absolutely exploded. And um, Enrique's work and everything he does is exceptional. So I would encourage people to connect with connect with him, too. Um, on, on, on LinkedIn as well, but it's, it's a great community um, to really be part of having a different conversation around um, what the future of human resources can look like. So Rachel, when I heard the word hack or hacking, I think about tech and startups. Is this like a HR on based on tech and startups or? Well, there is some part of the hacking, you know, hacking HR is that we're, we're looking at, you know, what are some, how can we redesign? How can we, like you wouldn't design thinking, right? Like, how can we redesign? How can we reimagine what this looks like? And we've done like hackathons. We've had events, like we did one about a year ago around well-being. And so, you know, we had um, a couple different groups that were traveling around with each other that would go to a station um, and, you know, work on kind of imagining ideas around that topic, whether it was mental health or finances or uh, physical physical health and well-being or the, or which is not, this is not super relevant now, but like the actual space itself. Um, there was somebody there from an architectural firm that was kind of talking about the, you know, space design to support well-being. So you know, we've done events that are hackathons, but also just the whole premise behind it is like really how can we disrupt and reimagine and just recreate and co-create a new and exciting future of HR beyond handbooks and just being the compliance police. And, and Enrique, does he still do like a monkey pitch competition with hacking HR? I think he do like a monkey pitch competition for like HR companies, right? Oh, he may be. I've like, I, I can't keep up with him. He does so many awesome things. I just, yeah, uh, I was just on yeah. his podcast. Yeah. He's great though. He does do a lot. So I'm here, right? Like hacking HR, y'all trying to be like new HR, right? Versus old HR. 
Yeah. It's like the new wave of HR. It's like, Hey, if, if, if everything that's been done before, if you want like to have a new conversation about stuff, people are actually like really going to implement, you know, some changes and um, are really excited about doing it in a new progressive way and about bringing in people from other industries and other, you know, um, other spaces to speak into this, whether it's people that come in from marketing or people that come in from design um, or from just a variety. So many industries are represented in those conversations that it's just a really great way to get exposed to really, first of all, very interesting people and, um, and, and just new ways of thinking about how to, how to get excited about kind of the next season of what your, you know, career in HR might look like. So Rachel, next let's talk about the National Speakers Association, which I believe you're a member of. Yes, I'm a member of the NSA. Um, I really got into speaking. Oh, I don't know. I first I, I did my first paid speaking gig in probably uh, 2010 and got paid 75 bucks, which I was like, sweet. <laughs> um, I spoke at my alma mater, which is a small liberal arts school outside of Baltimore. And, you know, I, I didn't, I would not have considered myself a speaker. I was asked to come back to speak to actually an HR master's class at um, my alma mater for the grad students there. And they had a unit, one session each semester on works, worksite wellness. And I was maybe two to three years into the profession as it was. And a client of ours taught the class. And so she said, will you come in and do this? And I, my, if I look back, I mean, my, my PowerPoints were terrible. I don't even like use PowerPoint that much anymore. I, I really know my content. And so it's more like a experience where people feel like they're actually, you know, talking to someone or like a keynote type style, as opposed to like, you know, me reading off screens. And, but it's how I had to start, you know, I started that way. And then once I really hooked on to the things I was passionate about speaking about, so some of those were kind of just changes in my own health journey starting about 10 years ago, um, 2000. Yeah. Or maybe, maybe about seven or eight years ago, I started speaking about some things I was discovering about how to totally shift my health and get rid of some, you know, health problems like acid reflux I used to have. And then five years ago is when I did my first talk at a SHRM event, um, a regional SHRM event. And I was co-presenting with somebody and it, I got, it went really well. And someone afterwards says like, that was really, that was really great. Do you do this a lot? And I was like, no, this is like my first time doing this year. And, you know, after that, I just discovered, I loved it. Oh my gosh. I, I get such a rush. I was with a group of like 300 people for a, a benefits consultant and their clients and prospects and employees today. So fun. Like I, I just, I, I love it. And for me, I've spent a lot of work really getting to understand the art and science of it. So there's a book called Steal the Show by a guy named Michael Port, P-O-R-T, who was one of my instructors at a, a, a school I went to called um, Heroic Public Speaking. So I did that starting in 2018. And I, I almost didn't do it. I mean, it was a big investment of time and money. And I already was realizing that it was probably my time was coming when I was going to be leaving my organization. And uh, my parents are both entrepreneurs. So it's kind of like I was following in their footsteps. And I said, I'm going to try this. I'm going to go for it. And I learned everything. I learned from improv coaches and vocal coaches and writing and performance coaches. And that was when I started singing also in my talks as well. And, you know, it's, it's reps. I have now done hundreds, hundreds of presentations. You know, I've done free presentations. I've done paid presentations. I've traveled across the country to speak. I've, I've done a lot where I live and I've, you know, done almost 70 virtual now um, since COVID. And it's, it's just like getting in the reps and really focusing on not how do I pad my ego 
that's where people trip up when it comes to speaking. How can I be in service to my audience? What do they most need from me right now? Do they need hope? Do they need to be uplifted? Do they need joy? Do they need uh, perspective? You know, are they struggling with their mindset and they need tools? What do they need? And so before I do any presentation, I'm very much focused on, on how am I serving the people that are giving me the opportunity to be with them and to share my stories and to share the things I've learned. And I find that that has been something that has really shifted things for me that don't be so focused on being a perfectly polished speaker. The way we speak now is a lot of times the way that I do presentations, just very candidly. And people find it so refreshing that it's not like a shtick. Like, don't be a shtick, you know? You have your own thing about you that makes you, that makes you interesting and play off of that. Let that be the thing that you lead with. Um, and just really, if you want to be a speaker, get in as many reps as you can. And don't worry about whether you're getting paid. I mean, it's going to take time, but um, be committed. It is a craft. And I have put, I've put, oh goodness, thousands of hours into it, truly, in terms of preparation and delivery and rehearsal and learning and coaching. And, you know, I've... I, I only want, I want to keep getting better. I don't think I've arrived and, and I love it. Um, so I'd say you really got to love it. Don't force yourself into it if you don't love it and find something that you're really passionate about speaking about and start with that and get in as many reps as you can and ask for feedback. Yeah. <laughs> Does the size of the crowd you're talking to change the way you prepare for it? Or is it the same preparation method each time, regardless of how many people you're talking to? Uh, the size does matter. The audience matters. So for instance, I would prepare, I sometimes prepare more for a group of 20 executives. <laughs> um, I prepare not more, I prepare differently than I would for a group of 300 people where you feel like it's perhaps lower stakes, but I bring my fullness in terms of energy and in terms of insight and in terms of really knowing who I'm talking to, I have a very similar process for everything I do. Like I really make sure I know who I'm talking to. I make sure I know the terminology that they use. I make sure I understand what their pain points are. And I make sure that I come with like this level of energy because emotions are contagious. And I find that no matter what the group is, whether they're a group of engineers or accountants or analysts or HR professionals or a group of women's leadership team, that everybody wants to be part of an experience that breathes life into them. And so Behind everything that I do is really that goal. How can I infuse energy and life and perspective and hope into whoever I'm with right now? And how can I equip them? How can I not just give them a bunch of quotes to put on a wall, but how can I give them practical, actionable tools that when they leave me, they say, oh my goodness, I have something I can immediately put in place. And that's what I find gets me, that's why people bring me back for stuff because they're like, well, we bring you in because your energy, we really like your energy, but we really like, like you to keep coming back. Like they like me to keep coming back because people walk away and they're like, oh my gosh, like, thank you for giving me something I can actually use. <laughs> Great. So, so let's say you can give an hour talk. Uh-huh. How many hours will you, will you spend preparing for that hour talk? Oh, it depends. I mean, it depends on if it's new content. It depends. I mean, I've spent... You know, I've spent hours preparing for an eight minute talk. <laughs> so to me, it really depends on, you know, how, how high stakes is it? Am I going to be in front of a hundred potential clients? Um, is this a group I'm already very familiar with? And I already have a certain level of, uh, of credibility built in. So, so much of it depends on the audience and, and, and how connected we are before I get on stage. 
um, or get behind my computer screen. And I'd say, I mean, the preparation varies. I mean, I did a three-week leadership training series for a group of 80 leaders where they were broken up into three different groups. So I did three 90-minute sessions a day, once a, once a week for three weeks. And my goodness, on top of the three full days, essentially, of training, I probably put, um, in terms of time, easily a week and a half hours-wise, you know, like probably 60 a good solid 60 hours into prepping for all of that in terms of getting to know the client, researching their business, um, preparing my content, preparing my questions, the discussion questions, putting together evaluations and reports. I mean, it's a lot. Like I, I, I very much, and I'm very intentional about what I do when I'm working with organizations because I don't want them to feel like it's canned and I don't want them to feel like I just did the same thing for somebody else the day before. I really want them to feel like, wow, she knows us. She cares enough about us to get to know us. And that's going to trickle down into how we then, uh, you know, connect with and interact with our people. So I'm trying to model the type of behavior that I want them to put in place, which for me, that's really rooted in being very intentional. So Rachel, like when can you tell you're going to knock out the park? Like, can you, before you give a speech on stage, you feel the energy, like, you know, you're going to knock out the park or is this something you really don't know until after you've done the speech? I can tell in the moment, like uh, it's much easier online because you have chat. <laughs> so uh, for instance, like two weeks ago, I did a keynote session with a group of uh, legal administrators, which when you think of the law profession, people don't always naturally stereotype that as like the most energetic and dynamic and vibrant uh, industry. Fairly or not. That's how most people characterize it, right? As kind of, you know, very introverted and quiet and whatever. This group was on fire. So first of all, <laughs> they were chapter leaders from all the association chapters across the United States. And so they have had some interactions with each other. They typically would come together in person at this conference once a year and really get to see each other and catch up and connect. So part of it is if a group already has a certain level of cohesion, when I come in, like, I, I like, it's like a, it's like lighting a match and it just, man, it sets it off. So for me, I, when I'm with a big group, like when I'm with, you know, 200, 300, 400, 500, 600, like I feed off of all of that energy. And I'm very intentional about having interaction in the chat, for instance, asking them questions, reading the things they're saying, saying their names as I'm reading it. And I find that there's, and I sing too in these sessions as well, which is kind of fun. And I just find that people are so excited about something that is not a canned PowerPoint with 50 words on a slide where the person is like face and hole in the corner that they're so into it because it is so different than what they're used to, particularly with virtual experiences. So I just, I just love to, I love to kind of like um, get people to rethink what's possible in these spaces and that, Hey, just cause it's behind a computer doesn't mean it has to suck. <laughs> um, and I like to show, I like to just say that I like to actually show people, Hey, bring me in to do something. And I will show you that this does not have to be a uh, stale and dry and boring presentation. It can be an interactive and active and engaging and dynamic learning experience. Rachel, when you see people pull on the cell phones, you're talking, do you see, you say that, hey, they're ignoring you and, and, you know, they're somewhere else. You see as B that they're sharing what you're doing on social media, like tweeting it out and sharing on Instagram. Well, it's funny. One of the comments I've gotten from my sessions is I didn't see anyone looking at their cell phones. <laughs> so one of the pieces of feedback I get is that people like aren't looking at their phones, which to me is a testament to their attention. I've had multiple people say that they'll say, no, but people usually leave early. 
Nobody walked out of the room early. Like what? It's it's like like what are you doing to us? <laughs> You're like, well, I'm connecting to your heart and your head, and that's making you feel engaged. But I generally don't get to. I, I try to focus more on the people that are really in it. And there's always those people in a room. It's different virtually because you can't see people's reactions. But when you're in person with people, there's certain people that that like are are very expressive, and they're more likely to laugh at things and show it. They're more likely to be smiling and nodding or giving you nonverbal feedback. I just spend my time connecting more with those people. I try to make eye contact with as many people as I can. But I really invest my energy in the people that are already giving me that energy back. So it's like a two-way exchange instead of getting caught up and worrying about why someone's looking at their phone. Like maybe, maybe they have a parent who's in the hospital. Like, I don't know. So I would much rather assume they're doing that because that's what they feel like they need to do right now. It's not a knock on me. And if it is, okay, so maybe I can't make everybody happy, but I'm going to focus on the ones that I can. Uh, so that, that's how I'd approach that. Great. So I believe July 7th, you did an article on LinkedIn about the four, I think believe the four traits of resilient people. Uh-huh. Can you talk about that a little bit? Uh, yeah. So since I feel like that's kind of like connecting a lot of these dots together. So when I think about the four traits of resilient people, um, one of the, and this is coming from somebody who, as I mentioned, I've sort of alluded to it in the conversation, but I burned out and got mono three years ago um, and recovered from, from that as a result of overwork and pushing myself too hard, which never happens to HR professionals. Uh, and then COVID hit and all my business disappeared because I was a, at the time, 100% live speaker. And then in a matter of two weeks, I pivoted and flipped everything to be virtual. And as I said, I've had 70 presentations. So that, that worked out well. But just as I had gotten to the place where I was feeling good about my transition with my business, I was out running with my husband um, uh, the first weekend of May and got hit by a car and ended up with a compression fracture in my back. And so I had been speaking to organizations and their people about being resilient for six weeks very like every week before that happened. And so I had a lot of my own medicine to take. And the first part of that is really accepting what is so much of, so much of our pain and suffering comes from resistance, resisting what is. So instead of saying, yeah, I wish COVID never happened. I'm so mad it happened. Okay. Uh, I am too. And it is our reality. That's our current reality in this moment. It will not be this way forever, but if I accept what it is, then I can choose how I want to respond to it differently instead of just continually being angry about how it is. Um, another thing that I encourage people to do is to really, is to reset your mindset. And I have different tools that, you know, we can certainly share with people, you know, that article I link out to different videos that I, that I put together around like, breathing exercises that help you get your thinking brain back online. Because when you're in a state of stress or anxiety or frustration or fear, the thinking part of your brain, the problem solving, the creative part of the brain shuts down and you cannot really make thoughtful, intelligent uh, decisions and have intelligent conversations when you're in that mode. And so I give people a, a breathing technique, for instance, for how to get back in their body, which helps them reconnect to their brain, which helps them then, get to a better place with their responsiveness. So, you know, resetting mindset is part, uh, focusing on bright spots, what I call bright spots, looking for the good things that happen over the course of your day, um, tracking small wins, any victories, even if something as seemingly insignificant as I saw a beautiful flower on a walk today, tracking those bright spots in your day, um, making sure, I know another part of it was um, around uh, don't hesitate, initiate. So like, ask for help. One of the things that resilient people do is they recognize their own limitations 
and they're willing to ask for the support and the help that they need when they're struggling with something. And that was something that I had to burn out before I realized that. And so I've learned now to ask for help, to not see that me asking for help is me being a burden. It is me being human. It is you being human to ask for help. So just making a list or making a list. What are some of the things that um, you could really use support on right now? And what are the names of, of a couple people that you could reach out to that might be able to help you with those things? Um, Why yeah. do you think we're so like unwilling to ask for help? Like we're you know, always doing us, don't give value, give value. But when you help, we really, really ask for help. Why do you think that is? I think, you know, for a lot of people, it's that we get our value and our identity from being useful. And if we're not being useful, we're like, well, I, I don't really know what I'm doing here. And so I think, especially in helping professions, there's a tendency to focus, overly focus on my identity is a result of my usefulness, as opposed to, you know, my, my usefulness comes out of who I am. And so I think it's a lot of it is tied to self-esteem issues. I think it's tied to self-worth issues or a lack thereof. I think a lot of people maybe haven't um, been affirmed by others or haven't necessarily taken the time to affirm themselves. And I think all of those things really affect how, how we see ourselves. So I, I think, I think that I personally think that is a, that's a really big part of it is we just don't, it's, it's a fear of judgment. It's an insecurity and it's also pride. I want to be seen as somebody who can handle all things all the time. So if I can't handle all things all the time, I'm not impressive. I'm not useful. I'm not needed. <clears throat> and then if I'm not needed, you know, it's like, why am I here? And so it really, it, it ties back to identity. So Rachel, you've, you've done a good job on LinkedIn doing articles. I believe you've written, written 54 articles. How has doing LinkedIn articles helped improve your brand? Um, for me, it's a matter, I don't think it's any one thing. I think it's consistency. So I started writing articles five years ago. I don't write them with any consistency yet. I plan to have, you know, a certain, you know, uh, plan that like every Tuesday, for instance, or every Wednesday, I'm going to post one. So I'm, I'm working toward that. Uh, I do, I think with LinkedIn, it's about posting regular content that's useful to people. So the, the, the shift I've made is like videos. I mean, I've done, I don't know, at this point this year, I've done over a hundred videos um, on LinkedIn that are intended to uplift and inspire people. They're intended to help people shift mindset. They're intended to help them be better communicators at work and at home to uh, be more confident in who they are and to connect to the strengths that they bring. So I really, I try to be a bright, like I, my, my goal in being on that platform is really to connect with people. I, I have had, I've have gotten some business out of it of people finding out about me because they started following my videos, for instance, um, but you know, it's a way to establish yourself as a thought leader. And so I've been using it more to kind of build up, uh, you know, some momentum as a, as a place. It's like my online diary, almost like my online vlog and vlog more or less of putting these posts on there every day with the goal of just sharing common experiences that I'm having, uh, stories about getting unmuted stories about resilience stories about my own, my own backstory and how I came to be and some of the challenges I faced and, People are, are just really hungry for genuine people talking about things in very honest and transparent ways with a bit of joy or a bit of humor or a bit of life to it. And that's what I feel like I do on there. And that's why I think I have, um, you know, more and more people that are wanting to follow the work that I do. So, Rachel, do you sing in all your videos? 
I don't sing in all my videos. I sing not, in some of them. No, no just the, the, the one today I, I did. What's that? Uh, everybody I saw you were singing in it. Yeah, I sang, sang on today's Elton John. Um, my voice is a little fried, so I've been talking most of the day. I had a keynote this morning. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, so I, I do those whenever I feel so inspired in the moment. So I've done, you know, It Is Well with My Soul, which was like right in the thick of COVID or, uh, you know, Ain't No Mountain High Enough or uh, This Little Light of Mine or Hakuna Matata. <laughs> I do lots of different, whatever I feel moved in the moment, you know, that's kind of, um, that's kind of what I end up doing. So Rachel, Talk about your company in more detail, like how the idea for your company came about, where's that right now? What's your, like your vision for it in the future? Um, well, it came about because, I, you know, I've always had a model for my, my family, my parents of working for myself. They're entrepreneurs, they run their own businesses, and I always wanted to do that. I knew I wanted to do that. And so it was really a matter of time. So I, you know, became a health coach eight years ago. I went back to school and got my graduate degree in health science. I studied a lot in, in the wellness industry. And so I got, you know, got to be a thought leader in that space, in the well-being space. And then um, I went, as I mentioned, going through that speaking training and some uh, several trainings around workplace culture. And I just got to the point where I realized, you know what, the thing I love the most is speaking. And that's just what I want to do full time. I don't want to do any of this other stuff. I want to do what I want to do, when I want to do it, with whom I want to do it, Right. Um, the way that I want to do it. And I don't really want to have any restrictions. I want to get to decide. I want to call the shots, basically. And the way that you do that is you work for yourself. <laughs> and so I got to the point where, where it was, I, I started there, as my dad says, uh, I, it was a size eight shoe and I had a size five foot, right? And then I filled the shoe. And by the time I left, I was like a size 13 foot and a size eight shoe. And I just had to, I had to go and it wasn't, you know, it was a good organization. I, I still do some work with them, actually. I have very good relationships still with many of the people I worked with. And it was just a matter of I had outgrown it. And if I wanted to expand to the level I wanted to get to with what I'm doing now, I had to take the risk. And I had to uh, bet, be willing to bet on myself and all the work that I had done to build my network and to build my skill set and to demonstrate my value. And I, I just got to the point where I said, you know what? It's time to do it. And I was actually excited. By the time that came, I wasn't running from that job. I was running to Unmuted. And, and that just excited me. And so it's, you know, I, I, now I do, I do keynotes or virtually and in person. I do keynotes. I do um, workshops. I do leadership trainings around, around building resilience, around being a more compassionate and empathetic leader, around um, being appreciative, around being more human and intentional. So, so I find that I'm often brought in to bring and breathe life into teams, into organizations, into associations, you know, whether I'm speaking at an all hands meeting or at an association conference um, or an industry conference, I, I just absolutely love getting to use my voice to share these messages and to be in a position to facilitate the unmuting of other voices to allow for that kind of collective co-creation of, of, of what is possible regardless of the topic moving forward. So it's, it's so much, I love what I do. I have so, I have so much fun doing this and I absolutely love it. Rachel, so do you have like a marketing plan of all this like word of mouth and organically that you get in all these great customers and great clients? So far it's been very organic. Um, 
gigs are generative. If you do a good job, people will tell people about it. If you do an exceptional job, people will tell a lot of people about it. And so for the most part, I often have people saying to me, Hey, that was so today, I got an email from a group I, I did something with. And they said, we think what you're doing is exceptional. That was outstanding. Whatever we can do to help and support you, let us know. So when people say stuff like that, guess what I do? I follow up with them. And I say, so you mentioned this. Let's have a conversation. So I'm not afraid to have conversations. I'm not afraid to reach out to people. Um, I'm, you know, reaching out to certain SHRM chapters. So I have like an assistant who's, who's helping me and, and, you know, communicating some of the sessions I'm doing around resilience because it's very timely to different HR chapters, you know, SHRM chapters around the country. And, and, and so that is a little bit of like outreach marketing. Um, you know, I have a newsletter that I, that I send out to people that has podcast episodes that I'm on or um, articles I've written or other resources and tools I think would be helpful to them. And, uh, you know, that sometimes will be one of the things that generates it or, you know, doing free speaking gigs at certain places that have people in the audience that have money to spend on, on learning and development or on employee engagement or on workplace culture initiatives. And then a lot of times I'm either referred in somewhere or um, people are reaching out to me and saying, hey, some, somebody told me, somebody that you spoke at last year told me that you were really great. We want to talk to you about speaking to our group this year. So I I'm, I'm very, feel very blessed and very grateful, but I'm telling you, you put in the work and you do a, you do a like excellent job, excellent job, like, like over-promise and over-deliver. If that is consistently what's happening, people are going to bring you back in. You know, people are looking for light and life these days and for something that is refreshing and different. That is what I feel like I consistently bring to what I do. And if you keep bringing value over and over again, people are going to market, market you for yourself, honestly. So that's, that's where I am right now. I'm figuring out some things because I do want to keep expanding what I'm doing to an even bigger level. Um, but for right now, for year one, it's been very organic and word of mouth. So Rachel, let's say there's someone out there that wants to start a business, but they're scared of the risk. What advice would you have this for this person? I mean, I'd be clear on why you want to do it. Like the question I like to really ask people, I sort of mentioned a second ago is, you know, what are you running? Are you running from something? Or are you running towards something? Because if you just hate your job, I have to get out of here. I just need to start my own business. It's not super glamorous. I mean, I'm submitting, I'm generating invoices. I'm putting together contracts. I'm doing some outreach and follow through with people. I'm doing the research for my work. I'm creating all the content. I'm delivering all the content. Sometimes I'm up until 1030 at night doing stuff, 11 o'clock at night. So I think the appeal of... People have to recognize, and I know Elena said this, Elena Valentine's friend of mine, I know she said this in the conversation you had with her, that it's like not all glamorous. Like yeah. you've got to be willing to the like suck it up. A lot of it's unsexy. Do, a lot of it's unsexy. You got to be willing to do the really like, or you got to figure out a way to delegate that to somebody um, who can handle that. Um, like I'm having a conversation tomorrow with somebody that I'm trying to offload some of those more administrative tasks on because they suck my energy out. So on my list of right energy vampires, Anything administrative is an energy vampire for me. So I'm like, I want to get away from those. So I can spend even more time being in front of people delivering these messages that I care so much about. So Rachel, I understand you have some for our listeners today. Yeah. So on my website, if you want to connect and learn more about this, I have different blog posts and um, other podcast episodes I've been on and more information about what I do and the kind of topics I cover. But if you go to unmutedlife.com, 
um, you can find a, re- a resilience resource guide will pop up. And so I've got a list of like, like my 10 to 12 um, strategies for boosting um, resilience. And they're very practical, actionable. And then I have like a, a reading list in there. of Some of my favorite books on those topics as well and how to like be more resilient. So, so that's a place where you can immediately uh, get, get a freebie after listening to this. And Rachel, can you share your social media for both yourself and your company so people can reach out to you? Yeah, sure. So I'm on LinkedIn. That is my most active platform. So just Rachel Druckenmiller, D-R-U-C-K. <laughs> I get the D-R-U-N-K a lot. But um, uh, so LinkedIn is one. I'm on Instagram at Unmuted Life. And that's uh, the E-D at the end, Unmuted Life. And then I'm on uh, Facebook at Unmuted LLC. And I would give you my Twitter and other handles, but I don't really use Twitter. I'm at Unmuted Life on Twitter. If you're on Twitter, maybe maybe you'll motivate me. If you're listening to this, to get more active on Twitter, but I'm on, at Unmuted Life on Twitter as well. And for the listeners, we have the links to her gift and her social media links in the show notes. You can find the show notes at www.cabinsaveshallblog.com and be sure to share this episode with everyone. Rachel, we're coming in with talk. Can you give us any advice on wisdom or on any subject you want to talk about? I would say if, if I were to leave people with one thing to walk away from this with, it would be one, to have a bit more grace and compassion for yourself. And then two, to have the courage to get curious about the things that you're doing well and the things you could be doing better or differently so that you can grow and to be committed to that journey, not just at work, but also in your other relationships as well, because um, there's going to be crossover and there's going to be spillover benefits. So be willing to be curious, be uh, courageous enough to be curious. And then based on the feedback that you get, I would say be willing to take action, be willing to take those courageous action steps because um, confidence is the byproduct of action. And so stop thinking about whatever's thinking about and, and, and take action and go do something about it. Rachel, thank you for your time today. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me, Jason. It was a great, great conversation. We covered a lot. And to our listeners, thank you for your time as well. And remember to be great every day. Thank you for listening to this.
episode of the Jason Kavnis Experience. Be sure to connect with us across social media at Kavnis HR. Thank you, and remember to be great every day. Don't you know?